It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, Bill Dudley came out of retirement to make some headlines. In a Bloomberg opinion column, the former New York Fed president called on the FOMC to not encourage President Trump's trade war and reject further interest rate cuts that could theoretically help his reelection. Dudley wrote, Central bank officials face a choice. Enable the Trump administration to continue down a disastrous path of trade war escalation or send a clear signal that if the administration does so, the president, not the Fed, will bear the risks, including the risk of losing the next election. The column drew swift condemnation from across the spectrum and from the central bank itself. Fed spokeswoman Michelle Smith said the Federal Reserve's policy decisions are guided solely by its congressional mandate to maintain price stability and maximum employment. Political considerations play absolutely no role. So did Bill Dudley join the deep state? We broke down the implications with Bloomberg opinion columnist Carl Smith and Skanda Amarnath, Director of Research and Analysis at Employ America. We started by asking Carl for his initial reaction. Uh, I'm in shock, I guess. You know, uh, it was a little bit unbelievable. Uh, he went so far. I mean, at the end, of course, he said that uh, perhaps they should try to get rid of Trump because Trump just has bad policies. Um, that it, it was unbelievable. I think it basically fed all the worst conspiracy fears of Trump supporters. It was in many ways even worse than the things that uh, Trump has suggested himself. <laughs> so so I, w- I was pretty, uh, pretty taken aback. Skanda, was there anything redeeming from this? Uh, not really. All I don't, right. I, I don't think this. I actually think even obviously the last paragraph was especially sort of felt partisan. But yeah. even the whole piece itself, in terms of the scope for the Fed and the scope of macroeconomic policy, the idea that the Fed should be this backdoor trade policymaker is absolutely absurd. Um, maybe it was. I'm, I'm not here to judge the intentions, but it just looks. It's a bad look. It's very ineffective. I think it's counterproductive to what the Fed's actually trying to achieve. How, Carl, would the Fed even go about doing such as making clear that they aren't cutting for a specific reason, like they don't want to incite further trade tensions, they don't want to incite further moves from the president. Is it even possible to nuance it in that way? I mean, so, I mean, look, they could just say that much, you know, what Dudley said, and I think that sort of message would get out there. Would it work? I mean, 
almost certainly not, right? So, I mean, even if they were trying to be subtle about it, it's hard to imagine that the president uh, would back off. But certainly if they challenge the president, there's nothing about Trump that says that he's going to back down, that he's, you know, not just aching for a fight. So they could say it, they could be clear about it, but I think it's, it's equally clear that it would completely backfire. Skanda, let's go back to your point that even sort of the top of the piece, in which you said essentially that the Fed should not be bailing out or underwriting Trump's trade war and should say, like, you know, this is not something that we're going to facilitate. Talk to us about why that just that, even if you forget the reelection part, is, in your view, deeply problematic. Well, it's uh, submission creep. Fed overreach is really the problem there, right? That the Fed is not tasked with trade policy. We do not put the trade policy tools in the Federal Reserve. That's the job of Treasury, Robert Lighthizer, uh, Steve Mnuchin. I mean, and to be fair, President ran on a certain trade agenda. He's not really drifted away from what he said. The idea that the Fed should step in to sort of um, discipline what the U.S. trade policymakers are actually doing at this stage is, again, yeah, missing. The point of the Fed is to read and react. If they have to lower rates because it sort of softens the growth outlook, then so be it. It's sort of a net-net sort of that just net even. It's not a net benefit or a net cost. I don't see why this is a bailout itself. Mm-hmm. Right. For the sake of argument, just sure. to take the other side here, mm-hmm. because it's a little bit of a pile <laughs> on at this point. Uh, what about the argument that actually, if you take a look at what the Fed is doing, that is political in that it is supporting President Trump and it is supporting his ability, Carl, uh, to continue to take a very hard line by exactly what Bill Dudley was saying, by basically creating a put underneath President Trump and the economy and, and frankly, markets. What would you say to that? Oh, well, it's, it's essentially their job, right? Their job is to support maximum employment no matter what the political policy is. And, and we have, like, clear analogs to this. So uh, oil price spikes are really similar to trade wars in there. They have a sort of both demand side effect and a supply side effect. And Dudley was saying, look, we have this horrible supply side effect that we can't counteract. But after decades of central banking, the consensus is that the central bank should not worsen oil price shocks, right? They should attempt to have the economy, look through them, as we say, sort of like coast through, accept a little bit of a price increase so that you won't get spikes in unemployment. So they'd be treating like the trade war the exact same way they'd be treating a real war, the exact same way they'd be treating Middle East policy. So that's not a political choice. That's a choice that's been mandated to them by Congress. Scandal, why do you think Bill Dudley did this? Mm. I'm struggling to see the motivation because I see a lot of counterproductive, like in the sense that I don't think the Fed is as political as Bill Dudley seems to make it out to be because Jay Powell and Riz Clarita have been more disciplined and I think they sincerely believe that the trade war may have some, could have some long-run benefits, it could have some long-run costs, it could have some short-run short benefits, but it seems to be that the short-run costs are pretty obvious. And they've simply framed it as we'll take the developments as we see them and we'll react to them. What Bill Dudley is saying is gives a very different impression and actually undoes some of the sort of communication that I think has been pretty solid from Jay Powell in that respect. Yeah, Carl, you said that essentially what Dudley uh, suggests the Fed do is worse than any conspiracy theory that Trump himself has fanned. And I'm curious, from a very practical standpoint, how much has Bill Dudley made the lives of his former colleagues uh, worse today than it was yesterday? 
Well, I think, you know, on the surface, you have to see that it's made it incredibly difficult. So I hopefully have a column coming out about that tomorrow. Um, I think Powell has to react to this. I don't think the statement that they put out uh, today was enough. He's got to say not only were is a sort of democratic overreach inappropriate, but this entire philosophy is bad. I mean, I think on Twitter I said, you know, uh, you have you, you can imagine just in like, you know, a fantasy of a silver lining is that this could sort of turn around the argument about Fed independence. So far, people have been worried that if the Fed cuts, it will look like it's caving mm. to Trump. Well, now, I mean, if the Fed doesn't cut, it looks like it's attempting to undermine mm. Trump. So maybe maybe they have a little bit of uh, extra room if they could play it just perfectly. But obviously, it's going to make their lives a nightmare, you know, in the short term. Honestly, I think that my bigger takeaway is just how political the Fed has become, even if it's not trying to, because it's being viewed in such a political lens no matter what it does. And the fact that that is sort of the narrative right now really, I think, was what Bill Dudley was trying to speak to, is that it's political regardless. I think that what he did, I think roundly everybody seems to agree, perhaps did not help, but it probably hurt the Fed, uh, maintain some independence. But nonetheless, I think that that's sort of the highlight here. I just want to point out Bloomberg Opinion put a roundup column of yeah. all the people, like other people's takes. There, there were no Dudley Supporters. defenders in the piece, so it's pretty I wild. have to say, though, the, the issue of central banks becoming politicized is something that I know well from the United Kingdom as well, because central right. bank was drawn into the Brexit debate to a certain extent. The fact that they were highlighting economic issues and concerns about Brexit made them the target as well. It's, it's really hard to be a central banker right now. Even with trade uncertainty looming large, some companies are still willing to splash the cash like VMware. The company announced it would buy software companies Carbon Black and Pivotal for a combined $4.8 billion as it seeks to expand its reach in development tools and cybersecurity. But investors weren't wholly convinced. Shares of the company were down nearly 10% the day of the announcement, the biggest sell-off of this year. We discussed the deal with VMware CEO Pat Gelsinger and started by asking why he thought the acquisition would be a boost for his company. And let's look at both deals. On the cybersecurity side with Carbon Black, you know, we believe that the security industry is simply broken. Way too many products, way too many cus- uh, companies in that industry. And what customers want is more security and spending less on security. And for that, we're going to deliver a complete end-to-end from the application across the network and to the endpoint. And this is where Carbon Black helps us. But we're going to leverage its technology across that entire platform. So we really believe we have an opportunity to be a disruptor and a consolidator in that industry. And this is a perpetual top priority for tech, for CIOs, and for boards and CEO offices as well. And on the pivotal side, you know, the number one thing that we see in digital transformation is can I build and deliver a great application experience? And the pivotal technology complemented with what VMware is doing and our earlier acquisition with Heptio, we believe we're uniquely positioned to leverage this major transition that's happening around the technology called Kubernetes. And it's as significant as cloud and Java over the last two decades. And we're gonna deliver a full build, run, manage environment to enable our customers digital transformation with the best software skills on the planet. So we're quite excited about both of these uh, acquisitions and our board fully supports us in moving forward boldly in this way. And of course, with our VMworld conference next week, I wanted to take that 
opportunity to tell the story to our 20,000 plus assembled there in San Francisco next week. Right. So I sort of understand how Pivotal, Pivotal and Carbon Black sort of fit in together and then sort of how those pieces will fit into VMware. But some of the concerns being raised by investors are just about uh, the amount of acquisitions and the amount of money being mm-hmm. spent on acquisitions. And I'm just wondering, when you look at the current debt load, when you look at your current cash position, do you think that the return on this investment that you're going to get is going to sort of make up for some of those concerns? Yeah, we're very positive on that. We're spending a little bit less than $5 billion and adding a billion dollars of revenue to the company, all of all, almost all of which is subscription and SaaS. And if you look at multiples, we'll say, man, this is a steal in comparison to what's being positioned with other companies. So in that sense, a billion dollars of revenue for $5 billion capital outlay, hmm, feels pretty good. We're also very confident in our ability to accelerate these businesses and turn them profitable as we've committed to next year and they fit in our strategy now that we can build run manage connect and protect applications nobody in the else in the world can deliver that comprehensive solution so yeah we believe we can turn these profitable and make it great for our customers and our shareholders very rapidly pat do these two deals sort of bring you up to speed with transitioning from legacy it to the newer tech generation, for lack of a better word that I'll call it, and sort of give you the size and scale that you need to take on competitors? Or do you feel like there are still a few more deals out on the horizon that you need to really compete here in this space? Well, I'd sort of take it in the last chapter of VMware was really laying out a comprehensive cloud strategy. And this was really ushered in by our major Amazon partnership. Earlier this year, we announced a partnership as well with Microsoft and Azure, and more recently with Google, last year with Alibaba. So we're really uniquely positioned in a multi-cloud, hybrid cloud world. And so that piece of our strategy is now well underway. And we believe these two acquisitions really fill out the next phase of our strategy to help customers build as well as protect those workloads. So it really is building on what we've done the last couple of years. And I think this is the center of our strategy for the next couple of years. And will we do some other tuck-in acquisitions? Well, likely, but we think these are the core assets that we need to operationalize and effectively grow into this next chapter of uh, VMware. Let's talk about the next chapter and the next chapter for your customers at the moment, because how solid is business investment in your type of software right now? How worried are you about the macro environment that you currently face, considering the dialing up of tensions between China and the United States? Yeah, and in our Q1 earnings call, I commented a bit of concern on the macro environment. And uh, this was uh, maybe a little bit startling uh, in the industry because we've gotten a good reputation of having a good visibility into the future. And in fact, on our earnings call yesterday, uh, and given some of the comments today, I was a bit more optimistic that if anything, I think we're seeing a stabilization. Our business in Europe, we actually grew in China and a strong uh, execution in the Americas. And we do believe that technology is in this phase where it is a digital transformation for every business. You know, it used to be that if tech, if the uh, business got a cold, tech got the flu. Well, now tech is transforming the business. And in that sense, I view it as wherever GDP is, tech is higher and well-placed software companies like ours are gonna be even better than that. So we see ourselves well above any of the near-term trends and we're seeing very good business into the future. And as a result, we reaffirmed our guidance yesterday for the second half. So we're feeling pretty good. All right, so Pat, real quickly, just a little bit more time here. The trade war, all the impact uh, going on with regards to China. uh, How's that affecting your business? Are you worried about it? 
Well, I think everybody should be pausing and thinking about this carefully. And the way I framed it is we're increasingly seeing that it's going to be a two trading block world. There's going to be the U.S. and its trading partners and China and its trading partners. Both of those will be putting pressure on their suppliers and on the supply chain for those suppliers to align against those trading blocks. And I don't think, given these uh, supply chain issues, intellectual property rights issues, this is not going to change overnight. This is a long-term restructuring of global trade. And I think every business needs to say, how do I participate in both of those uh, trading blocks? And I think every CEO is already working on figuring that out. So uh, today's announcements, I think, are something we're already underway. How do we participate in China? And we're firmly committed to that market. But increasingly, we have to say, how do we participate in the non-China trading blocks effectively? So both of us need to be part of how every company thinks about their go-forward strategy, and we're doing exactly that, even as we have to adjust to some of the near-term decisions by each country. Then we got an Emerging Markets Roundup with Paul McNamara, Investment Director at GAM Investments. We discussed the IMF feeling some deja vu in Argentina and his outlook for Brazil and Mexico, as well as the state of the U.S. and China trade war after the G7 summit. But we started big picture and asked what his biggest concern was for the emerging markets overall. Our main concern on EM at the moment is really looking at the dollar. When the dollar is strong, EM is weak, you know, and and you can sort of flush out all the, you know, the trade war stuff, uh, everything else that's going on. But anything that contributes to a stronger dollar is likely to be tough on emerging markets. And at the moment, you know, it, it really doesn't matter uh, how concerned we are about the, the, you know, the U.S. presidency or whatever. If the dollar is stronger, EM is weaker, and that, and that's really w- where we're stuck at the moment. All right. So, as uh, someone who focuses on emerging markets, what are you doing with your time? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're very focused on just a couple of markets that that we think look 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 reasonable at the moment. Uh, I mean, Turkey. Uh, the politics are horrible, but the the economics are are headed in the right direction. Mexico similar, but you know there's not a huge amount to be very positive on in EM at the moment. So U.S. dollar, your resolute will remain stronger and therefore remains a headwind for emerging markets. It's interesting. We had a CIO on earlier today saying there are opportunities within the emerging markets as long as you don't look at it from a blanket perspective. Say she was calling on. Chinese tech in particular, Infotech, that potentially was uh, an opportunity for a buy. Are there idiosyncratic opportunities within certain countries or is it you have to take a broad brush approach? No, I mean, we do think, you know, there's a few opportunities. You look at places like Turkey, which are bouncing back from a very nasty crisis last year. Uh, Mexico, quite similar. Uh, but broadly speaking, when the dollar is strong, EM is weak, and you know there's nothing going on this year to really make us uh, part company with that. So EM as an asset class, we're not hugely enthusiastic about. Well, let's talk about uh, Turkey because I know that at one point you were very negative on Turkey, and then they did, in fact, have a pretty massive collapse, and then you're like, oh, you know, the uh, the Turkish opportunity is over. When you talk about the economic signals, you're like, okay, the politics, we all know, is terrible in Turkey, but nonetheless, you can't argue with uh, the economic data that suggests a turnaround. What are the indicators that you like to look at that allow you to feel comfortable going into a country, even even if it still looks like a mess? 
I mean, for us, I mean, the key thing is the is the external balance, the current account balance. So the fact that imports have collapsed, you know, bringing the the current account balance back into to balance, you know, is 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 the major positive. Uh, if you look at Argentina, you know, no matter how bad the recession, they can't get to that stage. So uh, more than anything, we're looking at domestic demand collapses, imports collapse. That's the classic. EM recovery scenario. So, Paul, what would you say? I've spoken to a number of investment managers who say this is actually a great time to go into emerging markets simply because you have a Federal Reserve that will likely be cutting rates and engaging in a new easing cycle. Why do you disagree? Um, my big concern is about the dollar. At the moment, you know, when people want certainty, when they want a safe haven, they do tend to go to the dollar. Uh, it seems to me that we're in an uncertain world, you know, and, and you know, you can say what you like about the lunacy of your presidency, but you know, money tends to migrate to to safety, and we're not in a risk-seeking stage. We're in a it, it, we're in a risk-avoiding stage, and that means a stronger dollar, and that tends to be a tough environment for EM. Paul, what have you been looking at in terms of Argentina? IMF, they're on the ground, they're talking to the opposition and the current leader. What do you think they'll take away? Are they going to have to keep on giving money? Because at the moment, they're sort of more in, they've got so much exposure. Is there much else they can do? I mean, this is the trouble with Argentina at the moment, that we have um, an election with a purely binary um, result that, you know, it, the, the new... Uh, the, the Fernandes, uh, if they win, they're going to look to restructure the debt, which is, I mean, obviously a problem for the IMF. Uh, so, I mean, it all comes down to the election result, and that's really what people are struggling with at the moment. So, how does the IMF, and you've followed how the IMF deals with these sort of workouts for a long time, how do they play it in this interim period? Because right now there's a concern, there's another tranche of the bailout money to be released, but obviously everyone uh, assumes that Fernandez is going to win, and the market has already spoken. How do they, uh, how do th how do they think about going, uh, playing it here? I mean, I think the IMF are in serious trouble here because, it's, uh, you know, as you say, this is the biggest uh, purely IMF program we've ever seen. And, you know, and they're talking about an election result where a party which isn't committed to the IMF program uh, could, could well win. I mean, the IMF are extremely worried at the moment. They're not going to roll over the program to a new thing where you know where you have the imposition of capital controls you have discussion about restructuring right. uh, the the imf are not going to go along with that so paul let's work through uh what happens here i mean if the imf doesn't go along with it and argentina defaults on its loan that it has from the imf it's very good at defaulting it's done it many times before what happens to the imf does it no longer exist in its current form I think it's a huge problem for the IMF. Um, I mean, you know, no matter who was in charge, I mean, even Christine Kirchner under the previous administration always paid the IMF loans. And I think, you know, it, it, it's quite unlikely that the that Argentina uh, defaults on IMF loans. But I think, you know, there there is a serious concern that they default on a new, on the latest round of debt that they've issued. Um, you know, and that obviously reflects very badly on the IMF. Is it uninvestable, Argentina? Um, I think it's uh, invest only with money you can afford to lose. Let's talk about uh, real quickly Mexico is the other country that you cited initially along with Turkey as a place where you saw opportunities. Why was that? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about Mexico is, in the longer term, everything the new administration is doing is wrong. They're not making any effort to fix Pemex, the, you know, the state-owned oil company. They're not doing anything to increase the depth of, of, uh, of taxes in the economy. But overall, you know, the, the level of debt is very low. Uh, the one thing that the, the new administration does understand is that they can't afford to uh, default uh, on, on new debt. The central bank is fairly aggressive. It's, it's got a strong, you know, the highest, one of the highest levels of real rates in EM. Um, you've, got to like, you've, you've, you've got to like it here. And finally, we wrapped it up with a conversation about the strong dollar. The U.S. currency has been gaining power as the chorus of recession calls keep growing louder. Many experts on the street are weary of the greenback, saying a strong dollar combined with a shrinking economy could make it harder to come back from an economic setback. We discussed it all with David Beckworth. David is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and a former international economist at the Treasury Department. We started by asking him why the dollar has been so persistently strong, even if the fundamentals don't seem to justify it. Well, it's largely a network effect. It's uh, pervasive, it's ubiquitous. You look at the number of international trade contracts that are invoiced anywhere from 50 to 80%. 70% of the world has its currency linked in one form or the other to the dollar. Um, you look at the amount of dollar-denominated debt, both the debt that we've issued to the world, which is about $16 trillion, and, and dollar-denominated debt that's issued outside the U.S., about $12 trillion, a total of $28 trillion in dollar-denominated debt. So there is this global financial cycle, which in turn is really a dollar cycle, and it's, it's more of an impact on the rest of the world, which can come back and hit the U.S., uh, but it's definitely something to be mindful of. So, David, I mean, we've heard uh, time and time again over the years attempts or at least uh, some ideas proposed as to how to sort of uh, loosen the grip of the dollar in the world, create some sort of other reserve currency, whether it's the euro, the yep. yuan, or some sort of independent global currency. But as long as the United States is the largest economy, as long as it's the largest, most investable uh, financial market, is, it, is there any sort of realistic mm. uh, option where that would happen? Uh, no, again, network effects are strong, and, and there's been evidence that shows not only is uh, the dollar grip uh, where it is, it's actually getting stronger. Every time there's a crisis, uh, dollar financing falls relative to other terms of financing, and more dollar-denominated debt is issued. So we see more debt and dollars uh, denomination issued outside the U.S. So this, this dollar cycle actually builds upon itself. Mm. It's, it's a network effect that grows with each crisis. So even as the size of the U.S. economy is shrinking in relative terms to world GDP, the reach of the dollar is growing. What did you make of Mark Carney's synthetic hegemonic currency? I mean. Can it become the new hegemon? Can it put the U.S. dollar to one side? I love the name, but I don't think it's a great idea. Um, it, it's, it's well-intentioned. He has all the right reasons for proposing it. But, but the reality is, in order to compete with the dollar, it's a huge uphill battle. Again, if you look at the amount of dollars nominated debt, so there's about $16 trillion in liquid assets that we've issued to the world and another $12 trillion outside. That's $28 trillion in do dollar-denominated assets 
you want to compete with that, that's a lot of, of assets you have to issue. And I just don't see the central banks of the world coming together and issuing anywhere near $28 trillion in assets. There is no substitute for the dollar currently. Now, maybe in the future there will be, but as it stands, we, we're stuck here. And as I wrote recently, it's a cross we bear in the U.S. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. So the dangers of dollar dominance for the rest of the world are, I think, fairly well understood. When the Fed hikes, that often can mean tighter policies and economies right. that can't stand it. And uh, countries hoard dollars during the good times to save them for the bad times, but that means demand is persistently weak. But there's a growing theme or meme out there that it also is really hurting the U.S. And you see legislation put forth by two U.S. senators saying we should tax foreign uh, investment in order to weaken the dollar and help remove that role. Is that a good idea? Should the U.S. unilaterally do something dramatic to discourage the international purchases of dollarized assets so that it weakens and that the dollar does not become essentially our cross to bear, as you put it? Well, it it definitely needs to be addressed somehow because there is a real cost. That means we typically have an overvalued dollar, which leads to trade deficits and budget deficits. That's how you create treasuries, which are highly demanded. And ultimately, it leads to a more leveraged economy than otherwise would be the case. So this bill is one attempt to do that. My fear is what this bill does is it effectively reduces the amount of of safe assets available. Last time we saw this was in 2008, or something like this is in 2000. Excuse me, 2008, where uh, we had the crisis, a bunch of AAA-rated mortgage-backed securities disappeared, and what happened? The dollar got stronger, yields fell. This would, I fear, do the same thing. I mean, a proposal that might be more effective, one I haven't put a lot of thought into, is just issue permanent currency swap lines to Mm. our major trading partners. That would make bank runs there less likely. It would make their their banking system more secure. But it would also require some political persuasion. So politically, I don't see anything happening. And economically, again, big hurdles. All right, David, let's just turn real quickly to what's going on with the Fed and a lot of the criticisms uh, that we've heard from uh, the Trump administration about Jay Powell, this idea that by standing pat with rates or at least not moving aggressively lower, he's essentially allowing a tightening of financial conditions as a lot of the trade issues sort of swirl around. Do you think the criticism specifically of the Fed not moving aggressive enough is fair given the environment? Oh, absolutely. Um, if you think of kind of the textbook story of how we do monetary policy, you try to set the overnight rate or the path of overnight rates equal to some unobserved equilibrium or natural interest rate. And arguably, the trade wars and the uncertainty surrounding them has lowered that. So effectively, by doing nothing, the Fed's doing something. It's effectively tightening policy. Ben Bernanke in the past has called this a passive tightening of policy. So, yeah, I do think it, it's, it's probably behooves the Fed to get out in front of this. Now, I know politically it's tough, and the Dudley op-ed didn't help this any. But, yeah, I, I agree with that view. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. What could you do if your data was working for you? and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, 
and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more. So you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.